Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College, offering a fully online graduate-level certificate in learning differences and neurodiversity programs. Visit landmark.edu slash certificate to learn more. Hi there, I'm Randa Dilfettah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hello, I'm Katrina Schwartz. I'm Ki Sung, and you're listening to MindShift, the podcast from KQED about the future of learning and what it means for our kids. Today, I want to introduce you to someone who has a unique insight into overparenting. I'm Julie Lithcott-Hames, and I'm the author of How to Raise an Adult. Her blog post nearly broke our website a couple of years ago. The headline was, What Overparenting Looks Like from a Stanford Dean's Perspective. I was the Dean of Freshmen at Stanford University for 10 years, 2002 to 2012. And over the course of that decade, I saw three trends in college student behavior that began to concern me. Julie found that, number one, students were arriving at college more accomplished than ever. On paper, anyway. Stuff like GPA, standardized test scores, after-school activities? Yeah, founding your own business, starting your own charity, solving world hunger, what you'd expect from a Stanford student, but more. And the second trend she saw was that parents were more involved in their children's lives than ever. A student would casually mention that she had sent her paper home for her parents to edit. And I would raise my eyebrows in alarm thinking, I'm not sure that's ethical. And isn't it interesting that she thinks it's utterly normal? Or it happened on the roommate side. Student not happy with roommate. Student tells parent. Parent feels maybe they should talk to the parent of the other roommate. That the parents will solve it. Just like parents these days are solving problems in the sandbox. Or squabbles between elementary schoolers. Or the frequency with which a student's smartphone would ring, you know, or light up with a call or a text from a parent during the day, multiple times a day. Parents seem to feel a need to talk with their college student, inform them of something, check in about something, know their whereabouts, ask, you know, how did that quiz go? It seemed that parents were needing to be just aware of every little moment, every little step. All this behavior has become normalized over the years. But to Julie, that's not okay, because these actions have consequences, which we'll get to in a moment. But there's a third trend she noticed. College students, with all their accomplishments, were falling down in one very key area, self-reliance. When you see a 20-year-old lacking the impulse or the instinct to try to handle these things for themselves, it looked to me like existential impotence. It's not a pretty word. And it's not pretty to look at. 
This existential impotence starts well before college. In the early years, overparenting might look like mom bringing forgotten homework to school. Then there are those flawless school projects that look unusually perfect for a 10-year-old, or a college admission essay worthy of publication in McSweeney's. And we can't forget those parents who haggle with every teacher for higher grades. When parents overhelp, do too much protecting, offer this fervent, insistent direction, constantly there to be the concierge, fixing everything, planning everything, we are unwittingly depriving our kids of developing self-efficacy. Julie's argument to parents, her catalyst for writing the book, is that once these kids are off at college, needing to make their own way, the student, the parents, the teachers, discover they're just not prepared, that what you've got are carefully groomed college students who aren't able to exercise self-efficacy, which is that sense that we can do things for ourselves, that we can initiate the change we want to see in our lives. That's hard to do when parents are there every step of the way. Here's what a lack of self-efficacy looks like in a 20-something. I spoke to a young man who had um, been required to go to law school by his parents. Parents were both lawyers. Parents were sure that was the path to success in life. They sat him down. I believe he was 12, he told me, and said, you're going to grad school. It will be law school. And they began to attend his every significant academic meeting, the important meetings with teachers, the important meetings with guidance counselors and so on. By the time he was 25, his mom was still doing everything for him. She selects the apartment he'll live in. She negotiates the lease with the landlord. She goes to Ikea and buys all the stuff for the apartment. And there he is now, chronologically adult, feeling this existential impotence that I describe. Who am I? Do I exist if I can't even set up my own apartment, if I need my parents to do this for me? Do I need my parents to do this for me? Or do they need to do it for me? And when do I have the right to stand up and say, this is my life? This point came in his life in his first year of law school when his mother, he tells me, was contacting him three times a day. In her book, Julie writes about how this 25-year-old heard from his mom so much, he began thinking in his mother's voice when he was deliberating important life decisions. Finally, he ended up cutting off communications with his mom for several months and had to seek therapy. Okay, none of us wants that for our kids. None of us wants to be the hated parent who has done so, so, so much. We've deprived our kid of the chance to actually existentially exist. But that is what we're doing with our tremendous amounts of overhelp. It seems so obvious, but let's be clear. We're talking about millennials here, a group that already takes a lot of criticism from their elders for their lack of self-reliance, that idea of earning our own way, especially in the workplace. They're accused of being entitled and narcissistic and self-interested. That's Simon Sinek, a British author. And millennials are saying, we want to work in a place with purpose, love that. Um, we want to make an impact, you know, whatever that means. Uh, <laughs> We want free food and beanbags. <laughs> he gave this interview on Inside Quest last November, and it went viral. Somebody articulates some sort of purpose. There's lots of free food and there's beanbags. And yet, for some reason, they are still not happy. He says it's not all their fault. The generation that we call the millennials, too many of them grew up subject to, not my words, failed parenting strategies, you know? where, for example, they were told that they were special all the time, 
they were told that they could have anything they want in life, just because they want it. Right? Uh, some of them got into um, honors classes not because they deserved it, but because their parents complained. And some of them got A's not because they earned them, but because the teachers didn't want to deal with the parents. Teachers want parent involvement, but there's a certain kind of involvement often found in competitive, wealthy neighborhoods that has teachers saying, the kids are great, it's the parents that get in the way. Parent involvement is a constant source of tension in schools. In poor districts, it's hard to get overworked and under-resourced parents to even show up. In wealthier schools, the parents have the resources to hover. But sometimes, when parents are hands-off and let kids out to explore the world around them, they get a backlash. I got some mean comments from parents saying that I was foolish and asking for trouble. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to MindShift. Stay close. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hey. It's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. To sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. At the start of this episode about overparenting, you heard a couple of stories about overinvolved parents preventing kids from discovering their place in the world. My parents were always known as really kind of cool and <laughs> relaxed. That's Devin Berger, now a Stanford senior, raised on the opposite end of the parental involvement spectrum. My friends all love my parents, but they always kind of like let us do what we wanted to do more so than a lot of other people. There weren't so many like curfews and rules. But there was the Amtrak incident. Devin had just turned 13 and wanted to visit some friends in New Jersey. For my birthday, my parents got me a, a train ticket to go down to New Jersey, and they told me, well, you'll take the Amtrak down to Penn Station, and then you'll just switch onto the New Jersey Transit, and you'll get off at the right stop. And my mom also told me that you're supposed to be 15 to ride the Amtrak, so if the person who comes around asking for my ticket asks how old I am, I should say 15. And um, I told her I was scared <laughs> to do that. Um, I didn't want to lie. I was a really and probably still am a really straight-edge, rule-followy person. Um, and so she was like, okay, well, I guess we'll just hope they don't ask. Somebody did ask, the train conductor, as he took her ticket. I told him 13, and he said that a police officer would have to meet me at Penn Station to escort me. Um, so I ended, I, I ended up just 
kind of bolting off the train when I got to Penn Station and getting on the right New Jersey train. Okay, so just to be clear, Amtrak does allow 13, 14, and 15-year-olds to travel without an adult. But there are about a dozen requirements, including wristbands and signed parental releases. By the way, Devin made it to New Jersey just fine. I'm sorry that she had was put in that uncomfortable situation that she had to lie or get in trouble on the train, you know, because of me not playing by the rules. This is Susan Greenberg, Devin's mom. She teaches writing at Middlebury College and wrote about Devin's solo train ride on her blog. I got some mean comments from parents saying that I was foolish and asking for trouble and, you know, Amtrak had those rules in place for a reason and, you know, I was sort of flouting them. So, you know, I'm sure there is a reason why Amtrak has those rules because probably most 13-year-olds would not be comfortable riding the train or they don't want to be responsible for a 13-year-old. But in this case, I just, I felt like she could do it. She wanted to do it. And um, I was confident that she could. That right there is a pretty good definition of that term self-efficacy that Julie Lithcott-Hames uses. And so much of it begins with a parent. I asked Susan Greenberg to talk about her approach. I would describe myself as laid back and relaxed. I was never particularly nervous about them getting hurt. Um, I feel like I was just there along for the ride, watching them grow up and develop. And of course, I set boundaries and rules. But from Susan's vantage point as a college professor, she's not seeing much of a laid-back approach to life in her students. The one thing I've seen that makes me a little sad is that they're so stressed out about what they're going to do afterwards that there's a big rush on um, applying for internships, for example. And, you know, I, I can remember students in my winter term class, just they were so preoccupied with finding the right internship and, or just finding any internship because that's the thing to do. And if you don't get an internship, then your life is ruined. And the stress and pressure that they felt about getting into college um, is carrying over now into what they're going to do after college. Susan recognizes that letting kids find their own way and make their choices may mean that they don't choose academic achievement She's all right with that. I also have a son who's at a school that nobody's really heard of, and that's fine with me, too. I really don't care at all that he is where he is because that's what he wanted and was capable of, and he ended up at a place that's great for him, that he loves, and he's doing very well. So sometimes I feel like parents think they really know what's best, but I don't at least I don't feel like I always know what's what's best. I sometimes feel like my kids actually know better than I do. Anxiety around taking on adult responsibilities, that's of course nothing new. But it's how some millennials have gone about handling it that's uniquely millennial. My name is Carly Bouchard. I'm 30 years old. Earlier this year, Carly attended a three-day workshop at the Adulting School, a program that helps people learn skills to help navigate adulthood. They did these little workshops after about, like, how do you change a tire or fold a fitted sheet or sew on a button? I mean, these are things I learned how to do when I was, like, 11 to 18 years old. Like, I can change oil in a car. I can change a tire. 
One workshop focused on financial literacy. Another session was about how to develop the soft skills to help you get what you want out of life, professionally and personally. Like, how do you interview? Like, what makes a good resume? Like, how do you need a cover letter? If you want to change your career, how do you even go about that? Like, to make a positive change and not feel trapped. I think it's learning how to navigate relationships appropriately, whether it's figuring out what you value and setting boundaries so that you're not taken advantage of, or like recognizing if someone is truly like a good match for you, but maybe you didn't realize. She was first drawn to the financial literacy workshop because she needs help paying down student debt, but she's at the point in her life where she's ready to take more control of her life overall. There's a workshop for that too. Now that I'm looking at it, like I like my job, but I really want to find something that I have like a leadership role and more autonomy and passion for, and also gives me like a greater return on my investment of time. From that, like really feeling happy in like my career, I feel like. I wouldn't mind being more invested in that, and then like having greater self-care because of it, in terms of like wanting to be rested and like go home and like be ready for the work week, and then truly value the time that I have as my own and is free. I have to pay this debt down. I have to do it because I'm only living half as good a life as I could be. Adulting school might not have all the answers, but at least millennials are having the conversation about these issues and seeking out answers. And to Julie Lithcott Hames, former dean of freshmen at Stanford, talking about what it takes to be an adult is helpful. I chuckle when I see hashtag adulting on social media. Got to go to the DMV today. Hashtag adulting. I love it because it tells me that a youngish person is recognizing there's a set point that they have. And then there's this task called adulting, and they can see that there's a distance between their natural set point and the task. Just recognizing that there's this sort of place of adulting that exists is, I think, a good thing. So, for somebody who has given all those trophies, for somebody who's given those their kids all that praise, how do you step back from that? And also, how do you recognize this is what you're doing, and how do you step back from that? Well. You know, once upon a time, I was this dean working with other people's kids, year after year, telling parents of Stanford students every chance I got, "Hey, folks, back off! You know, trust your kid, trust us. Now, please leave. You know, it's college, not middle school." And then I had the mortifying discovery when my own kids were eight and ten that I was on track to be that very parent who would not be able to let go of my eighteen-year-old. My kids were. It was dinner time one night, and leaned over, began cutting my ten-year-old son's meat, and it struck me in the heart, like, oh my gosh, of course I'm not going to let go of him at eighteen because I'm cutting his meat at ten. I probably just stopped velcroing his shoes two years ago. I mean, I'm doing too much, and I got it then that we're not supposed to be fostering a dependency on us. Right, we're supposed to be actually teaching them more and more skills as they go. So I guess I tell this story to say, I myself have begun to experience a turnaround in my own parenting style, and I believe it's not too late for anyone for that reason. Some of the telltale signs are、um, your language. If you're the sort of parent that says, "Oh,、uh, we're on the travel soccer team," <laughs> no, you're not. You just try running up and down that field three times. Okay, no, your son is, your daughter is. Check your language. If you're saying "we," but you really mean "my child," 
you're depriving them of the right to their own experience. See if you can stop. See if you can start saying my son or my daughter. If you're over helping with the homework, you're, you're cleaning up the math. You're rewriting the sentence. Let's face it. You're rewriting the paragraph. Maybe you're restructuring the whole essay. You're outright doing the science project. You know, hey, you achieve the short-term win. They get a better grade. And don't we all wish teachers and principals and heads of school would stand up and tell us to stop this behavior. Teachers and parents, teachers and administrators, I mean listening, please, 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 at the start of the next school year, draw the line and tell parents what they must stop doing. Every parent is desperate for the school to draw that line because they know if I just stop helping with my kid's homework, I'll send him off to school and he'll compete with everyone else's parents who've been overhelping with the homework. It's gotten so out of control. So overhelp with the homework is another thing. And then challenging all the authority figures in their lives. For some reason, we think we ought to argue with the teachers and the principals and escalate to the superintendent and argue with the coach. Not saying authority should never be questioned. I'm saying what we need to be doing is teach our kids, teaching our kids the skill of how to advocate for your own needs and speak to authority figures with respect. Okay, that's what we're supposed to do as parents, teach them, not pretend we'll always be there to do it for them. So those are some things people can start doing right away to both, you know, if what I'm saying resonates and you think, oh my gosh, I'm doing some of those things, you know, to notice it in yourself, then those are three things we can sort of stop doing right away or, you know, next Monday or January 1st or whenever it feels safe. Thanks to Julie Lithcott-Hames. Her book is called How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kids for Success. And by the way, in case you're looking for some lessons, the adulting school has been rebranded the Adulting Collective. Big thanks to Linda Flanagan, Susan Greenberg, Devin Berger, and Carly Bouchard. Our editor is Jacob Conrad, and our audio specialist is Seth Samuel. Special thanks to Peter Cavagnaro, Cecilia Lay, Anna Karina Carose Correa, Roger Chung, Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Paul Ancour at KQED. And thanks to Kelly McLaughlin for designing our logo. I'm Ki Sung, and you've been listening to the MindShift Podcast from KQED. And I'm Katrina Schwartz. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know by rating us on your favorite podcast app so more people can find out about us. See you next time. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. 
Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.